This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. In the last two episodes of Once Upon a Crime, I shared with you the tragic death and near death of two young celebrities. The perpetrators were those who considered themselves at first to be fans of these stars, but ultimately they became obsessed and dangerous. We've learned more, sadly, after these tragedies and others like them, about obsessive fans that have become dangerous stalkers. Most follow a common pattern of behavior. They are often younger people between the ages of 20 and 34, and to some degree they are all mentally or emotionally disturbed, often with a family history of mental illness. They are often loners and have an inability to maintain relationships in real life, so they sometimes imagine one with a public figure or figures. Their obsession with the celebrity often begins with repeated watching of their films or television episodes, collecting photos and other memorabilia of the star, and creating a scrapbook or even an entire room dedicated to them, such as the one Yolanda Saldivar created for Selena. They write and send numerous letters, emails, or other forms of communication with the star. If they receive some kind of communication in return, this often ramps up their obsession, and they might then make a plan to travel to meet them in person. If they are ignored or rebuffed, they can act out angrily and or violently. All of these traits a young man named Robert John Bardo fit to a T. He had begun obsessing over and stalking celebrities from the time he was a young teen. The final object of his obsession would pay for his attentions with her life. We are in the series Fatal Fans. This is Chapter 2, Rebecca Schaefer. Rebecca Schaefer was born November 6, 1967, in Portland, Oregon. Originally, Rebecca wanted to become a rabbi. But so many people commented on her beauty as a teen that she began modeling in her junior year of high school. Rebecca, with her long curly hair, cherubic smile, and big brown eyes, was a classic girl-who-you-wish-lived-next-door beauty. She had boundless energy and a wholesome look that got her noticed by casting agents. Soon, she began getting small acting roles in television commercials and as a film extra. She moved to New York City in 1984 to pursue a modeling career. In New York, her modeling career faltered. She was considered too short at 5'7 to be a fashion model. She did, however, continue to get acting roles, landing a part in the American soap opera One Life to Live. She played the part of Annie Barnes for six months on the show. Still unable to find work as a model in New York, she traveled to Japan in 1985 to try her luck as a model there. Disappointed by her progress in Japan, she returned to New York and decided to focus on her acting career. She was cast in a small role in Radio Days, a Woody Allen film, but most of her part was edited out. At the same time, she finally received a modeling job and was featured on the cover of Seventeen magazine. Television producers in Hollywood saw the cover and contacted her agent. They were then given the demo reel from Radio Days to review, and impressed, decided to cast her in a new sitcom called My Sister Sam. She would play the younger sister named Patty to Sam, played by the actress Pam Dauber, best known for her role in the hit television series Mork and Mindy. Rebecca was now a bona fide Hollywood star.
Robert John Barta was the youngest of seven children of an American Air Force officer and a Korean mother. His parents had met in Japan when Robert's father was stationed at Yokota Air Force Base. The family moved frequently, finally settling in the U.S. in Tucson, Arizona in 1983, when Robert was 13 years old. Robert was a bright student, but a loner who was socially awkward. He didn't seek out friendships with other children, but would stand alone apart from his schoolmates. In junior high school, he began writing letters several times a day to one of his teachers. He would sign them Dirty Harry, Scarface, or James Bond. He wrote about committing suicide and hinted at killing the teacher as well. Alarmed, school officials met with his parents, advising them to seek psychiatric help and counseling for their son. The parents denied that Robert had any problems and refused to enroll him in counseling. He did, however, spend one week in Palo Verde Hospital, being evaluated, but his parents insisted he needed no further help. There was obviously problems at home, however. In warm forms sent home by the school for the parents to fill out, Robert himself wrote, Help! This house is hell. I'm going to run away again. I can't handle it anymore. Please help. Fast. At about this time, Robert had become obsessed with Samantha Smith, a teenager who became famous at the age of 10 when she wrote to the Soviet leader Yuri Andropov and received a personal letter and an invitation to visit the Soviet Union. She and her parents spent two weeks there, and she became known as America's youngest ambassador. After writing her several letters, he stole $140 from his mother's purse and took a bus to Maine, searching for Samantha. She had previously replied to a letter Bardo had written her. Guessing where Robert had gone, his parents contacted the authorities in Maine. Before he could make contact with Samantha, he was picked up by juvenile authorities and returned to his family. His obsession with her only ended when, tragically, she died in a plane crash in 1985. Robert, now in high school, remained a loner. After he sent a teacher a 10-page letter vowing to kill himself, he was temporarily sent to a foster home. His parents still insisted he was fine, and he was soon returned home. He was last hospitalized in 1985 and held for one month. He was diagnosed as severely emotionally handicapped and as coming from a, quote, pathological and dysfunctional family. He took readily to therapy and seemed to be improving, but his parents insisted he be released from the hospital. He dropped out of high school one week later. During his trial, he was interviewed by a psychiatrist who reported to the court that Bardo's father was an alcoholic and his mother displayed paranoid symptoms. He also reported that at least one brother physically abused him. Robert himself does not like to talk about his family issues. He does, however, say that his big mistake was dropping out of high school. He was isolated, he had no friends, and he never had a girlfriend. He spent his time watching movies or TV and retreating further into fantasy. Bardo got a job at Jack in the Box. He would work at 5 a.m. in the morning as the restaurant's janitor. The rest of the day he spent sleeping, watching television, listening to music, and writing letters. It was at this time that he discovered the television show My Sister Sam and Rebecca Schaefer. Bardo was 16 years old at the time and saw Rebecca as the ideal girl, beautiful, wholesome, innocent, and attainable, at least in his mind. After watching the actress on My Sister Sam, Bardo began writing to her. He received one letter in return written by a press secretary. It was signed, Love, Rebecca. He also received a signed photo. He cherished this letter and photo, 
now believing that he and Rebecca had a personal connection to each other. He made videotapes of her television show and watched them over and over. He also collected pictures of Rebecca from magazines and posted them in his room. He spoke of her as if he knew her personally and continued to write her letters. In 1987, Bardo traveled to California to the Burbank Studios, where My Sister Sam was being filmed. He carried a large teddy bear and a letter for Rebecca. He was turned away at the gate by security guards. Back home, he began to mentally unravel even more. He began shouting at strangers and making obscene gestures to passing motorists in his town of Tucson. He threatened to shoot a neighbor complaining that he was making too much noise. One month later, he traveled again to Los Angeles and Burbank Studios. This time, he was carrying a knife. Later, he would say that he brought the knife because he thought Rebecca was becoming arrogant. Again, he failed to make contact with Schaefer. John Eggers, the security chief at Burbank Studios at the time, would later testify at his trial. He recalled feeling sorry for the young man. He believed he was just another lovesick fan perfectly harmless, and commonly seen trying to gain access to the studio lot. He himself drove Bardo back to his hotel once he was turned away from the gate. On the way, he had a heart-to-heart talk with the young man, telling him it was best to forget about the actress and go home and work towards his own goals. Bardo even called Eggers from the bus station on his way out of town, thanking him for talking with him and telling him he would take his advice. Eggers felt he had done a good thing that day for the young man, that he probably just needed an adult to talk to who would listen and share a kind word. After that, Bardo did stop pursuing the actress, but instead shifted his focus to the singers Debbie Gibson and Tiffany. Rebecca may have been safe now from Bardo's attentions, except soon after a film was released in which Rebecca had a part. The movie titled Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills found Rebecca playing a much different character than she did in My Sister Sam. She was now playing an adult in a black comedy and appeared in one scene in bed with a male actor. This infuriated Bardo, who now believed she had become, quote, just another Hollywood whore. The movie was released June 3, 1989. Six weeks later, Rebecca Schaefer would be dead. Now Bardo transferred his romantic obsession with Rebecca Schaefer to a fatal obsession. He began to make plans to carry out his murderous intentions towards her. His first goal was to find out where she lived. My sister Sam had been canceled, and even if he could get past the studio security, she would not be there. He needed to discover where he could find her. Having read about Arthur Jackson's attack on Teresa Saldana in People magazine, he learned that Jackson had obtained Saldana's address by hiring a private investigator to provide him that information. Now Bardo did the same thing, paying a private investigation firm $250 to obtain Schaefer's address. They were able to find it by doing a search through California Department of Motor Vehicles records, the same way the other firm had found Saldana's address. Incidentally, Bardo himself could have obtained the same information by paying a small fee to the DMV. He also asked his brother to purchase a 357 Magnum revolver for him. In the state of Arizona, a person had to be over 21 to purchase a gun. Bardo was 19. Bardo then headed back to California. This time he packed light. He brought the photo and letter from Rebecca he had received three years earlier. 
He also brought a cassette tape of the band U2's song, Exit. The lyrics in part were, Deeper into the black, deeper into the white, pistol weighing heavy. This song is an anthem and a motivator to carry out his plan. He also brought a copy of the novel The Catcher in the Rye, the same book carried by Mark David Chapman, the murderer of John Lennon. He had sent letters to Chapman while Chapman was serving his prison sentence, and they had corresponded briefly. Chapman, however, thought Bardo was scary and stopped writing back. He also brought the 357 Magnum with a full round of hollow point bullets. Rebecca Schaefer had moved to Los Angeles when she was cast in My Sister Sam. At first, she lived with her co-star Pam Dauber and her husband. But Rebecca was a self-confident and unafraid young woman. She soon moved into an apartment of her own, finding a nice place in the quiet Fairfax district of Los Angeles. When she told her acting teacher about the move, he recalls telling her that she shouldn't live alone. But she said she didn't mind. Rebecca seemed to enjoy her time alone and wasn't the least bit afraid of living in a new city by herself. She used her alone time to practice her acting skills and memorize her lines. On the morning of July 18, 1989, she was doing just that. She had just received a script and had only a few hours to study it before an important audition. She was auditioning for a part in Godfather 3. Rebecca was thrilled with how quickly her acting career was taking off. She'd had a prime role in a television sitcom, and while it hadn't lasted more than two seasons, it had led to the movie role. Rebecca really wanted to be a movie actress, and a part in the sequel to the blockbuster Godfather franchise might just be her ticket. She was then understandably annoyed when the door intercom buzzed her away from this task. The buzzer was connected to the outside door of the apartment building. Guests would be identified through the intercom, and then buzzed into the building. But on this day, the intercom was out of order, so Rebecca had to go to the door herself to see who had come to call on her. Bardo took the overnight bus from Tucson to Union Station in Los Angeles, arriving on the morning of July 18th. With Rebecca's address in hand, he headed out to her Fairfax neighborhood. He walked up and down the street and in front of the building for over an hour before he summoned the courage to buzz her on the intercom. He could hardly believe it when Rebecca herself opened the door. He showed her the photograph he'd brought and handed her a note. She seemed startled, so he quickly tried to explain, saying, I'm your biggest fan. Rebecca thanked him politely, but said she was very busy, and saying, take care, told him she had to say goodbye. She shook his hand and retreated inside. 
Bardo was disappointed, and his disappointment soon turned to anger. He walked to a payphone and called his sister in Tennessee and told her about the encounter. He described Rebecca as having a cold look on her face. He told his sister that he planned to, quote, stop Schaefer from forsaking her innocent childlike image for that of an adult fornicating screen whore. His sister was alarmed by his words, but not thinking that he was dangerous, simply made him promise to leave the actress alone. Bardo hung up and went to a nearby diner to have breakfast. After finishing his meal, he went into the bathroom, pulled out the gun he was carrying in a plastic bag, and loaded it carefully. At 10.15 that morning, Bardo was back at the apartment building on North Sweetser Avenue. Rebecca had finished studying her script and was preparing to head out for her audition. Getting ready to dress, she was in a black bathrobe. Once again that morning, her intercom buzzed. She went out and opened up the glass door, but no one was there. Bardo, this time, had ducked out of sight and was hiding on the side of the building. Seeing Rebecca open the door, he rushed out, ambushing her. He shot her once in the chest. Rebecca screamed and fell back, crying out, Why? before collapsing. Bardo said nothing, simply watching the blood pool around her before he jogged away, down an alley and out of sight. Neighbors heard her scream and came out. Finding the young woman bleeding, they quickly called an ambulance. She was rushed to Cedar sinai Hospital, but she died 30 minutes later. Rebecca Schaefer's life, so full of promise, ended at the age of 21. Robert John Bardo quickly hopped on a bus and headed back to Arizona. Although he had gotten away, he could not hold it together. Police were called when a young man was seen darting in and out of traffic on an exit ramp on Interstate 10 in Tucson. Witnesses reported that a man was either on drugs or suicidal. Bardo had never had a drink or taken a drug in his life, but he was definitely suicidal. Police were able to pick him up and take him into the station for questioning and evaluation. Once there, he quickly confessed to the murder of Rebecca Schaefer in Los Angeles. I thought I owed it to Rebecca to kill myself after what happened, he said. Tucson police faxed Bardo's picture to Los Angeles, and Schaefer's neighbors quickly identified him as the man who had been hanging around the neighborhood the morning of the shooting. Bardo was arrested and extradited back to Los Angeles for trial. Bardo was charged with first-degree murder. He pled not guilty to the charges, but waived his right to a jury trial, thus avoiding the possibility of receiving the death penalty. He did not deny the prosecutor's version of events, except to argue that he did not ambush Schaefer. The judge disagreed. His defense attorney tried to make a case against first-degree premeditated murder. He didn't deny that Bardo had killed Schaefer, but said that his history of mental illness and his troubled family life were mitigating factors. He asked for leniency in this regard. Los Angeles County Deputy Assistant District Attorney Marsha Clark still four years away from becoming famous as the prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson murder trial, countered these claims by calling witnesses like John Eggers, the security chief who had been so kind to Bardo. Eggers said that Bardo was, quote, one of the most lucid and intelligent people I've ever dealt with, and said he pegged him as a glove-sick, harmless fan, and had not observed him to be crazy or out of control in any way. 
Marsha Clark argued that Barrow's murder of Rebecca Schaefer was a cold and calculated act. She believed that he had killed her to become famous himself. She detailed the methodical planning that went into his crime, including the length of time he had been planning the murder. That it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment act carried out by a crazed person, but well thought out and planned. The judge agreed with the prosecution, and Bardo was declared guilty of first-degree murder with the special charge of lying in wait added. He received a life sentence without the possibility of parole. At his sentencing, Bardo said, The idea that I killed her for fame is totally ridiculous. I do realize that what I did was irrevocably wrong. If you believe it is just and right to send me to prison for life, then I believe it is just and right. It is tragic that given all the alarm bells and red flags that went off in the life of Robert Bardo, he was not identified as dangerous or provided with mental help. Besides all the letters he wrote to teachers and others that outlined his thoughts of murder and suicide, Bardo also kept a diary where he wrote of his need to, quote, become famous to impress Schaefer. He identified with John Hinckley's obsession with Jodie Foster and how he'd become forever linked with the actress in his assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan. His family knew he was imbalanced, and they knew of his obsession with various people over the years. He shared his need for revenge more than once with his sister, and finding out about the actress's murder, she herself contacted police in Los Angeles to identify her brother as a suspect. His brother, also knowing his mental health history, purchased the murder weapon for him, something he would have been unable to obtain for himself, given his age and his history of mental illness. His parents balked at any attempt at getting mental help for their son, perhaps believing that there was a stigma attached by doing so, or perhaps because his mother herself was reported to suffer from mental illness. It took an act of murder for anyone to take Barrow's mental and emotional problems and his dangerousness seriously. But ultimately, the court must have realized his need for evaluation and treatment, as he was at first sent to the Vacaville State Prison, which is a medical prison facility that provides, among other things, mental health treatment for incarcerated individuals. He would later be sent to Mule Creek State Prison, a maximum security facility with units set up to house more notorious criminals and separate them from the general population for their own safety. Some former and current inmates also include Suge Knight, Charles Manson, and Lyle Menendez. Bardo was attacked by another inmate in 2007 and stabbed several times. He recovered from his injuries. Still in prison, Bardo continued his obsession with Rebecca Schaefer. He insists that his name and phone number were in Schaefer's appointment book the day she died. She was going to call me, he maintains. Why else would she have put it in there? There is no evidence that Rebecca Schaefer had ever even heard the name Robert John Bardo. Following Schaefer's murder and Saldana's assault, California laws regarding the release of personal information through the DMV were drastically changed. The Driver's Privacy Protection Act was enacted in 1994, which prevents the DMV from releasing private addresses. Schaefer's murder also helped to finally get legislation passed in California. 
legislation that Teresa Saldana, another victim of violence and nearly a murder victim herself, had been fighting for since her attack in 1982. In 1990, California was the first state to enact an anti-stalking law. Before then, stalkers seemed to slip in between the cracks of law enforcement and mental health agencies. Neither knew how to identify stalkers or protect victims. In most states, police could not even act unless there was an overt threat or a crime had already been committed. After the California anti-stalking law of 1990, stalking itself would now be considered a crime, with stalking defined as repeatedly following or harassing another person and making a credible threat that causes the person to fear bodily harm. Following California's lead, all 50 states and the federal government now have enacted laws that address stalking. Other protections created after Schaefer's death include restrictions on public access to addresses from driving records in California and a specialized Los Angeles police unit that works with prosecutors, celebrity attorneys, and security details to keep obsessed fans a safe distance away. Even with legislation, stalking victims find it confusing to find help and difficult to have their rights enforced. To listen to the reality of what victims often go through, listen to Episode 7 of the Peripheral Podcast to hear two people talk about their experiences with stalkers. It's chilling and eye-opening. For more information on stalking and to find out what help might be available to you, here are a few online resources. In the U.S., you can go to victimsofcrime.org. In the U.K., paladinservice.co.uk. That's P-A-L-A-D-I-N service.co.uk. And in Australia, log on to the Domestic Violence Resource Center website at dvrcv.org.au. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you'll join me next time as we continue the series, Fatal Fans. In upcoming episodes, I will share with you crimes that shocked the world as a worldwide superstar and a powerful leader were gunned down by fanatics. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. To give feedback or suggest show topics, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod and on Twitter at Upon a Crime. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.